Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. How does a black cop in a mostly white state talk to her kids about police shootings of African-Americans? I looked at my two-year-old son and I said, how can I explain to him that people that dress like me are killing people that look like you? From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Denkowski. As America comes to grips with police shootings in Oklahoma, North Carolina, and California, we'll return to the issue of race and policing in New England. We'll go to a city that's trying to make its police force look more like the citizens it serves. People that are anti-police that I know, with them seeing me as a police officer now, it gives them a positive look. We'll also head to the Big E, an enormous agricultural fair that brings people from all around New England together to argue about food. So I'm from Connecticut, where we eat lobster rolls like the right way. No, 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 these are the better, because they're cold and they're straight for me. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up, we'll meet an African-American police officer living and working in New Hampshire, one of America's whitest states. You get it from both ends. I get it from my law enforcement friends that's saying, I don't get this whole Black Lives Matter thing. Why does race matter? Why does... You're sitting there saying, what if I am a part of that movement? You're not asking me. You don't care to ask because you're not seeing me. And Jeff Cohen of WNPR tells us about two Connecticut cities trying to make their police forces look more like the people who live there. But first, racial discrimination in policing has long been an issue in the city of Boston. In 2014, the ACLU of Massachusetts put out a report that found that black men were disproportionately stopped by city police. Two years later, the Commonwealth's Supreme Judicial Court has cited that report in a ruling that could have broad implications. In essence, it says that black men who try to avoid a police encounter by, say, running away, might have a legitimate reason to do so. Here to talk about the ruling and the reaction is Anenjor Enwemeka, a reporter at WBUR in Boston. Welcome to Next. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. So first of all, give us the details of this case and, and the ruling by the SJC. Yeah. So the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court was looking at a case that involves a man named Jimmy Warren. He was arrested in December 2011 by police who were investigating a break in in Boston. Police had been given a description of suspects as three black men wearing dark clothing and hoodies. An officer later spotted Warren and another man, both wearing dark clothing, walking near a park. When the officer approached them, they ran. Warren was later arrested and searched. Nothing was found on him, but police did find a gun, an illegal gun, um, in a nearby yard. Uh, He was later convicted of having an illegal gun. So what the state's highest court did was, uh, in its ruling, is it overturned that conviction. And this was for two key reasons. One, the court said police didn't have the right to stop Warren in the first place. And the fact that he ran away isn't evidence of guilt or suspicion. So on that first point, the court said that the description of the suspects was too vague, that there weren't any other details such as height, weight, or any other physical characteristics that would have made it 
clear for them to target Warren. So basically, the court said that this made it impossible for police in that case to reasonably target Warren or any other black man wearing dark clothing. A couple key things here. The break-in happened in a neighborhood in Boston called Roxbury, which is a predominantly black neighborhood. And Warren was stopped about a mile away from the break-in about 20 to 30 minutes after uh, that crime had been committed. Now, on the second point, the Supreme Judicial Court uh, said about fleeing police, the state's highest court pointed to data uh, that indicated that black men in Boston are disproportionately stopped by police, and that may cause black men to run from police to avoid being profiled and not necessarily to hide guilt. Now, the court isn't saying, hey, everyone should run from police. The court isn't saying fleeing police is never suspicious. But they said in the justices said in this case, fleeing police is not necessarily evidence of guilt, especially given past findings of racial profiling of black men in Boston. And I think we'll want to talk more about that second piece of it that has garnered so much attention. But from a practical standpoint, what does this mean about the way Boston police might have to do their jobs differently? It it seems to suggest that they need to come up with far better descriptions of people before they go about pulling them aside and wanting to talk to them. Yeah, so it's a it's a really that's a really interesting point, and I think that's why there's been so much reaction to this ruling uh, that came down here in Massachusetts. Now, in terms of practically what this means, that's a little unclear at this point. Um, again, there's certainly been a lot of reaction. I've spoken with uh, the police commissioner here in Boston, Bill Evans, who says that this ruling won't change how police go about their jobs here. That's been the reaction from police. Tell me about the reaction from advocates, people who've maybe worked for the ACLU and have been trying to change the way Boston police do their jobs for some time. Yeah, there's been a lot of reaction from advocates here. Uh, The ACLU of Massachusetts has applauded the ruling, um, saying that, This message is strong. It's bold, especially coming from the state's highest court. And they said that this ruling really looks at police encounters through the eyes of a black man. Um, I've also spoken with um, some other folks here in the city of Boston, um, some city councilors who say that the ruling legitimizes the experiences that many Uh, people in black communities have when it comes to encounters with police. And they're hopeful that it will lead to some meaningful reforms, um, particularly around looking at training, looking at implicit bias, uh, things of that nature. It's interesting that the disconnect that seems to be taking place here between some city officials in Boston and some members of the community, if what police are telling you is an injury is that they're not going to change the way they police, then what exactly happens here? I mean, what's what's the outcome of something like this if indeed police are saying this doesn't mean anything for us? Yeah, it, it's certainly an interesting uh, distinction in terms of the reaction here. Uh, one thing I will know uh, from the police department um, and, and from the mayor um, himself here in Boston is that, uh, you know, I, I spoke with the police commissioner who said that, you know, both of them weren't really pleased with this ruling. Uh, the police commissioner said that the court looked at data from the ACLU, which in his mind was biased against the police department and uh, 
was exaggerated in terms of the numbers. Now, in the ruling, uh, the justices did cite the ACLU report, which you mentioned. Uh, They also cited the police department's own data, which did show disparities in terms of the stops. The police commissioner here says, um, however, that that report did not show that there is bias. Um, He basically said that his officers are not targeting people based on race, that they're targeting high crime areas and they're targeting the individuals um, who are committing the crime in the neighborhoods. And I think what's interesting is that the ruling itself um, also says that judges, uh, lower court judges, so when it comes to assessing a a particular case, uh, whether or not someone running away from police in that case is evidence of suspicion, the justices in their ruling said judges should take into account the data on racial profiling and police stops in Boston when determining whether someone fleeing from police is in fact suspicious. So the ruling itself does outline a directive for lower court judges to, you know, they're basically saying, hey, there is this data that shows there is racial profiling or there has been racial profiling in Boston, and that needs to be taken into consideration when considering the actions of someone who is approached by police. A last thing for you, Zeninger, I know that you follow social media very closely, even comments on your own reporting on this. I'm wondering what the community reaction, beyond advocates and beyond city officials or members of the police force, what are people talking about in and around Boston around this ruling? Yeah, the the, the reaction, the comments, uh, the reaction on social media has been really interesting around this case. Um, I think uh, one thing I've noticed is there's a lot of questions that people have in terms of, does this mean, okay, so does this mean that I should I can run away from police? Does this mean I can leave any time? And I think we have to be very careful in terms of that. This ruling from the Supreme Judicial Court here in Massachusetts is not telling people, hey, you should go run away from police. Uh, So what I would say is everyone should definitely read my story, but should also read the court ruling itself, which I think really lays out exactly uh, this idea of racial profiling and what that means. um, Because I think, you know, there are times where it is in your best interest to speak with police. And there are times where you can exercise your right uh, in certain circumstances to not speak to police. Zeninjor Enwemeka is a reporter at WBUR in Boston. She's been covering this story. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Two hours from Boston, Hartford is a city with a majority-minority population and a police force that is mostly white and suburban. How big is the gap? Well, more than 60% of the city's police force is white, and only 7% of the police live in the city. Only 16% of the city's residents overall are white. So Hartford is short about 20 to 25% of a full police force as well, and as it tries to rebuild that force, the city's thinking about how to make the police more representative of the community that it serves. Jeff Cohen's a reporter for WNPR in Hartford. It's a question he's been thinking about a lot. Hi, Jeff. Hi, John. Uh, What got you interested in the question of policing and recruiting for the police? Well, a few months ago, I was at a press conference with Hartford Mayor Luke Bronin, who mentioned he was having a tough time getting Hartford residents to become police officers. 
In fact, he's going through the process of hiring a class now and another one again in the spring. And of the more than 80 residents who showed initial interest this time around, the city doesn't expect more than a handful to make it through the process. So here's how the mayor tells it. We had a list of uh, 83 or 84 Hartford residents who had submitted applications to the police force. And in the past, we'd had the experience where a whole lot of Hartford residents who would express some interest ended up not showing up for the exams, and we lost a lot. Uh, that way. So uh, I made calls to every one of the folks that we had on the list uh, in the week before we had our uh, written and physical exams uh, just to say we're pulling for you. Uh, make sure you show up. Uh, we w are, are focused on getting more Hartford residents into our police force and uh, we want you to succeed. But the mayor's calls weren't enough to get everyone who signed up to actually come and take the test. I also spoke with Hartford Police Chief James Ravella about the issue. So it was disappointing. Um, to say the least. My first numbers um, from that day were 84 were applied to take the test, 84 calls were made by the mayor, 24 did not even uh, show up for the written test. So that left 60 to take the oral, written, and physical tests. Ravella said that of that 60, only 14 passed. Then came the background checks. And how many of the 14 do you think you'll clear? We usually clear um, 20 to 25 percent. Of the background, of the ones on whom you do a background check. Right. So four or four five, five out of an, a list of that began 84. at 84. 84. That's right. Four or five Hartford residents out of 84 who showed initial interest will actually make it far enough through the process to go to the academy. That's kind of amazing that the numbers are that low, that that's all the interest that they have and that the numbers get whittled down so far. Yeah, and it's frustrating because they're trying, as you said, they're trying to rebuild their department and make it something that is more representative of the community. And they have an opportunity here to do so because they've lost so many officers. They're down so much from where they've been that this is a real opportunity for them to rebuild the force the way they want to. So what are they doing to change this dynamic? Well, first, Bronin, uh, the mayor of Hartford, says he's, he's reached out to the Federal Department of Justice for a Assistance. We've asked the Department of Justice to come in and partner with the city to help us diagnose what uh, what's not working well, uh, to help share best practices, to help us learn from what's happening around the country, and maybe help us try to pilot some new things here that aren't being tried elsewhere in the country. And Chief Ravella says the city should invest in training programs to help its residents prepare for the test, just like a college applicant might take an SAT prep course. To recruit our city kids, I, th I think we need to provide testing services. I think we need to provide physical agility, that they know how to run, they know how to do their, um, their, their physical agility. They have to prepare much better. We also have to prepare them in the oral examination. Even though folks don't fail that at a great rate, there are some that do. The chief's talking about helping people prepare for a test. Is there talk in Hartford about actually changing the test, maybe lowering the bar of entry to become a police officer in the city? Well, I think the way the mayor would say, well, so the answer is yes. They're going out and they're looking for another contractor to look and see if the test accurately measures what it means to be a good officer. Um, and there are debates in there, right, in terms of whether or not changing the test to make it easier for Hartford residents to make it through the process is the right way to go about it. And that's a question that I have then taken up and explored also in Bridgeport, Connecticut, which is doing just that.
So Bridgeport, like Hartford, is a poor city. It's also a majority minority city, a, a larger city than, than Hartford. What did you find out there? What are they trying to do? Sure. Well, Bridgeport's in a, in a similar situation to Hartford, but a little further ahead along the process. More than 60% of Bridgeport's residents identify as black or Hispanic. The city's police department is majority white. So the city's trying to make a change by giving a preference to Bridgeport residents who want to wear the uniform. I spoke with a man named David Dunn. He runs hiring for the city where he was born and raised in Bridgeport. And for years, there's been a consistent complaint. Certainly for the last uh, decade, there has been a, a good deal of criticism from the community and a number of community-based uh, organizations that our police department was... Uh, was not reflective of the community as a whole. So a couple of years back, the city decided to see if it could successfully get more Bridgeport residents on the force. It changed the written test to give residents a boost. When it came to the oral interviews, the city included community members on the panels. But the biggest change came after the testing was done. Bridgeport residents got a 15% bonus on their scores. The result was obvious. Of the top 150 candidates, 80% came from the city. The hope is that a local officer may be a better officer. Lisa Mastronunzio works with Dunn and helped reshape the testing, and she's thrilled. Because it's representative of our, of our community, it's people who care about our community versus coming in from another and, and I'm not knocking that, but there's something to be said for people who live here and are proud of being here and who will maybe, maybe work harder and care more. It's not clear whether local cops do make better cops. John DiCarlo is a professor at the University of New Haven. Before teaching, he spent 34 years as an officer and eventually a chief in Brantford, Connecticut. He says putting a premium on local officers can be good for community relations and politics, but it could also mean that Bridgeport is lowering the bar. What they're doing is a social experiment. Uh, we don't know if it works. Uh, we don't know if it's very successful. Uh, so it's innovative, and uh, there is certainly nothing uh, wrong with innovating in police work and trying to find solutions to the vexatious problem of getting people to do a difficult and unpopular job. But at least by the numbers, the experiment worked. The city recently held a graduation for the first class to come out of this new resident-focused process. Of the 29 new officers, 26 are Bridgeport residents and 22 identified as non-white. The ceremony was a party. I now present to you the Bridgeport Police Academy's Class 37. One by one, new police officers made their way to the front of the auditorium stage and got their badges pinned by their parents, their children, their siblings. Mayor Joe Gannam shook each hand. Not only are they bright and fit men and women, but they look like you, they talk like you, and most of them are from the city of Bridgeport. So I'm very proud of this class. Jonathan Simmons is one of those new officers. He's 23, he's black. He's always wanted to be a Bridgeport cop, and he hopes his presence will send a good message. People that are anti-police that I know, with them seeing me as a police officer now, it gives them a positive look, saying, okay, if Jonathan's a police officer, I know all police officers aren't the same. As it looks to hire the next class of officers, the city worries that it will only get harder to find residents who both want to be cops and whose backgrounds don't disqualify them. But George Mintz says that means everyone needs to work harder. He's the president of the Greater Bridgeport NAACP branch. The bigger picture of having 
police officers from the community on the police force, it helps to spread the message to young people in the community that they can grow up and, and be part of the police force. And Mintz says that may be the best long-term strategy to get Bridgeport's police department to look like Bridgeport. WNPR's Jeff Cohen reporting for us. Thanks, Jeff. You're welcome. Coming up, we'll continue our look at race and policing in New England. This is next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and global warming. Today on the show, we're returning to the issue of race and policing in New England. While this region has been spared in the wave of high-profile shootings of black men by white officers, those killings do resonate here. A few weeks ago, Emily Corwin of New Hampshire Public Radio brought us her investigation into the criminal justice system in Hillsborough County, New Hampshire. It's the state's most populous and most diverse county in what is an overwhelmingly white state. She found that blacks are six times more likely to be in jail than whites. There's a disparity in the police force, too. In the city of Nashua, there are only two black officers in a police force of 170. Today, Emily introduces us to one of those officers, Sergeant Lakeisha Phelps. Sergeant Phelps. Hi, Nicole. I can remember when I first got hired, I had a little blue sports car, and one of the troopers would stop me like once every other night. I'm like, how do you not know my car by now? <laughs> it's, I worked midnight shift, so I would be coming to work at 11 o'clock. He would be in the turnaround, and I would see him come out, and I would just start pulling over. Can I attribute it to me being black and in the wrong place at the wrong time? Probably, because I stick out like a sore thumb. My name is Sergeant Lakeisha Phelps. I am currently a street supervisor for the Uniform Field Operations Bureau. Um, I've been here for 19 years, so long time. You get it from both ends. I get it from my law enforcement friends that's saying, I don't get this whole Black Lives Matter thing. Why does race matter? Why does... You're sitting there saying, what if I am a part of that movement? You're not asking me. You don't care to ask because you're not seeing me. And I'll get from actual family members. Cops suck. Not you, auntie. And it's sort of like, but I'm here. What began as a routine traffic stop turned deadly Wednesday. Philando Castile has died. That week, it just came to a head because so much stuff had happened. Over the shooting death of Alton Sterling by two Baton Rouge police Snipers opened fire on police who were on duty at a black... My deputy chief came to me and said, hey, would you participate in this community conversation? It gave people in the community the opportunity to see what police officers thought I just want to know, like, how do you guys feel and take it? Like, when you hear about um, the young black males getting shot, obviously, by the police, like, how do you guys take it? Like, what what happens in the police office? Like, what do you guys talk about? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, I guess. The whole time the that I was there, I'm like, Lord, I need to keep my mouth closed because I know something wrong is going to come out. I get very defensive of police officers. 
um, because I am one. That, that's what I can relate to. That's who I am. That's you know what I can relate to. I get to. I, I say, hold on. Don't judge the cop on what happened yet until you know what happened. And don't. Take when I what say it was overwhelming, I can still replay parts of actually getting up and speaking. I woke up. I never felt such hopelessness, despair. I felt miserable. I looked at my two-year-old son and I said, how can I explain to him that people that dress like me, because he knows that I'm a cop, he comes to the station all the time, people that are dressed like me are killing people that look like you. Not that they're not killing white people or Asians, but this is a personal, now I'm speaking as a person, not as a cop, that was my personal assessment. What do I say to a two-year-old black kid? How do I explain that to him? Fast forward until officers getting ambushed and killed. My 14-year-old white daughter came downstairs and said, you going to work today? I said, yep. How can you go to work when you know that there are people that look like you killing people that are dressed like you? This was a choice that I made to put this uniform on and protect people that look like you, 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 no matter what. It's not a choice of, yep, I'm gonna treat her different because she's black, I'm gonna treat her different because she's white. I made that decision and I made that decision for Nashua. No other police department, I didn't want to work anywhere else, I didn't go any, I don't, I don't live in Nashua, so I'll, t I'll tell you that, but I wanted to work here. I, I impressed myself by keeping a lot of negativity out of that conversation because I wanted to take a, a stance of black power and you guys need to recognize black people. But I know that that's not the case with some of my coworkers because it's not that they don't recognize black people, they're just uninformed. And I wouldn't believe racism existed in a sense if it never happened to me. Like all these incidents involving police shootings, it's like he didn't shoot him because he was black, but you don't know that. You're just speaking on you wouldn't shoot somebody because they were black. But I absolutely know that I can get shot just because I'm black. Do I think my coworkers or other officers in the New England area have that same empathy that I, I can feel? But I think they need to feel it or hear it or know it um, from somewhere else outside of what they're seeing on TV. It needs to be talked about now. That's Nashua, New Hampshire Police Sergeant Lakeisha Phelps talking to Emily Corwin of New Hampshire Public Radio. Let's go a few hours south of Nashua to the western edge of Providence, Rhode Island. It's a neighborhood that's dealt with high rates of crime for years. Dean Isabella and Jose Rodriguez both grew up there, several decades apart. Isabella is a captain in the Providence Police Department. That's how he met Rodriguez, who was a teenager and an active gang member. Years later, their paths crossed again when Rodriguez started working to stop gang violence. Isabella and Rodriguez describe how a kid from the neighborhood and a cop became close friends as part of the Rhode Island Public Radio series, Speaking Across Difference. My impression of police at 19, 20, 21, and even earlier than that was that the police are here in this community only to hurt me. And it's only because every encounter that I ever had with police was them removing someone important from my life. My name is Jose Rodriguez. I'm 32 years old, and I'm a case manager for the Institute for the Study and Practice of Nonviolence. 
As a district lieutenant, I was charged with uh, problem solving in our district. And our district had issues with both the Manton and Hartford uh, housing developments, which were a hotbed for gang activity. My name is Dean Isabella. I'm 53 years old, and I'm a captain with the Providence Police Department in Providence, Rhode Island. That was my first encounter with Jose. Yeah, he had braids, hmm. and he was heavier. You know, he was just part of that whole Manton crew, which was the name of the gang that was in the Manton housing development. How I found myself involved with the crew was simple. I grew up in the area. You, you had to pick a side. I lived on this side of the bridge, so I'm going to stay on this side of the bridge, and anyone from the other side of the bridge that crossed the bridge, then we're going to have an issue. That was just a typical street encounter with somebody who was raising hell, and it was my job to make sure that he wasn't comfortable raising hell. Lieutenant Isabella at the time wasn't uh, perceived to be the nicest individual. Uh, he could come off as being looking very mean, so very intimidating, to I'm, say the I'm least. Hurt. <laughs> My experience being raised in the same community as Jose was um, a lot like his. So Manton Avenue at the time was a very poor area. It was an area that had a lot of crime, drug-related crime, and organized crime, actually. When I started working at the Institute and I actually heard that he was actually from the same neighborhood, I was able to make him into a human. Um, because uh, growing up where I grew up, I dehumanized him because I saw him as the enemy. And you have to appreciate the fact that he grew up in this neighborhood and he came back to patrol this neighborhood and to try to make this neighborhood better. What I think growing up in the same neighborhood has done for me is just, it, it allowed me an insight to the circumstances of people's lives and what causes them to, you know, maybe resort to doing some things that they would not have if they were in a better environment. You develop an empathy for folks that are growing up, an understanding for folks that, that are uh, growing up in those circumstances. And when you do, you understand that, you know, there are reasons behind why some people turn to criminality to survive. I had already met Jose, he was working for the Institute, and I had gotten information that Jose was possibly dealing drugs again. But I wanted to make sure that that information was true, and I wanted to give him an opportunity to tell me whether or not it was true. Walking into the meeting, I was scared because I, I was on parole. I, I honestly wasn't doing what they said that I was doing, but I was immediately, you go into, you retrieve back into that mentality of, well, he's a cop, he's gonna f me over, I'm gonna go back to jail, and I'm really not doing anything wrong. Like, I'm really trying to do the right thing. I said, Jose, this is what I'm hearing. I'm hearing that, you know, you're dealing drugs and, you know, the circumstances around that. And he just explained it and said, nope, that's not what's going on. This is what's going on with that. He brought it to the table and basically gave me an opportunity to either, if I was doing it, cut it the hell out or to come clean and we could work it out. For the first time there, I think that I saw him as a, as a person like, wow, he's, he's actually not trying to put me in jail. Like he's, he was given some information that he may or may not have believed, but he wanted to clarify it and make me aware of it and that made him a person like he actually cared for a moment about me when the conversation was had it gave me a sense of relief so that's what i felt uh, walking out of that room like relief like wow maybe i do have somebody on my side
I got myself into a situation and I got a violation and I got sentenced to 15 months. And I was surprised at the amount of support that I still had coming home, uh, Isabella being one of them. When he got out, I called him and we set up a date. I picked him up. We went and just grabbed the coffee to, to talk about life. Him just picking me up was strange because I'm getting in the front of the police car, which was something completely new <laughs> for me. And I do want to point that out, that it was initiated by him. Like, he really wanted to make sure that um, him and I um, sat somewhere and had an honest conversation. Look, you don't throw away a whole life because it got, because it got banged up in a few spots, right? You, you don't do that. And, and you, don't, you don't throw away all the hard work that you did to get to the point of where you are um, because you made a mistake. You know, that's just, it's life. You make mistakes, you pick yourself back up. And I remember the conversation, the honesty in the conversation, you know, this is no longer he's a cop and I'm a guy. Like, this is me and my friend having a conversation over coffee. I just wanted to make sure that Jose understood that the people that supported him are going to still support him and still still want him to succeed because it's important. I mean, he, he not only important personally for his own life, but important that you know, he's doing the type of work that can affect people's lives forever. You know, if he can reach one or two kids, he might be saving their lives. One of the things I don't want to be misrepresented is, like, I'm a mentor for Jose. I mean, I don't, I don't perceive myself as a mentor. I perceive myself as a friend. You know, and friends, you want your friends to do well. You want your friends to succeed. You want your friends to be able to have a good life. You want your friends to be able to, you know, be happy. And that's really what I want for Jose. And I think he's done a lot of hard work to take uh, a very difficult circumstance and start to create a pretty good life for himself. I was running on that false impression that everything that I had done prior to going to prison was voided because I went back to prison. Um, the people that I had helped, the people that I had reached, um, were no longer going to have the same respect for me because I went back to prison. But uh, um, I was able to regain that respect. And, you know, I'm moving forward, I'm doing better because of it. That story was produced by Rhode Island Public Radio's John Bender as part of their series, Speaking Across Difference. Thanks to Umbar Espinosa for her help. Coming up, competition pigs and horses, clam chowder and lobster roll battles, and a quick trip to all six New England states. Where can you find all this? Well, find out next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of housing and homelessness. The last weekend of September into October usually means fall foliage is reaching its peak in northern New England, with the rest of our region turning quickly after that. But this extended warm weather means a late start for leaf peepers. We thought it'd be a good time to brush up on the science of fall leaves. That's why we're joined by Patrick Scahill. He's a science reporter at WNPR in Hartford, and he writes the science blog, The Beaker. Patrick, welcome to Next. Hi, John. So first of all, what signals a leaf to change color? We should say from the onset that this is super, super complicated, and no one is really entirely sure how this works. But the thought is that leaves basically start to change color when days start to get a little bit shorter. And essentially, to understand this process, we have to kind of think about 
basically think back to our high school biology class and think about photosynthesis and the pigment that's at the heart of that, which is chlorophyll, the green pigment that's in uh, plants, uh, gives leaves their green color during the spring and the summer and uh, helps them make sugars and starches and all that good stuff that keeps the plants happy. During the fall, uh, days uh, get shorter, as I was saying, and the plant essentially gets flooded with all these hormones saying, okay, guys, it's time to basically pack up, break down the chlorophyll. Chlorophyll has, uh, we should say, nitrogen in it, which is pretty pretty valuable. So the plants want to protect that. They break it down and they essentially slurp it out of the leaves and back into the actual tree itself. So they're slurping nitrogen out of the leaves, back into the tree, storing it up essentially for a long winter. Yep. And that's in part what makes the leaves change their colors. Yeah. So the greens that were in the chlorophyll pigments get broken down. They get sucked back into the trees. And then the other pigments that were there are left behind. Those are things uh, like carotenoids, for example. That's uh, a pigment uh, that gives the leaves their yellow color um, and orange colors. That's what we see in like egg yolks and in carrots, for example. So that is there when the chlorophyll is there during the spring and summer, but it's just not there enough. So the chlorophyll goes away, the green goes away, and then that's left behind and it gets a chance to sort of show itself off. Okay, so, so you mentioned the sort of yellow or orangish colors. What, what accounts for the variety of colors? I mean, we, we see the bright yellows, oranges, reds, there's browns. Yeah, so uh, we have the carotenoids that get left behind. And then the other cool thing that happens when the days start to get a little bit cooler is uh, the leaves actually start making other pigments, uh, something called anthocyanins. And these are these are red pigments that give apples their color, for example. Um, and if the nights are actually, you know, very, very cool, not freezing, but cool, and if you have a lot of those in a row, uh, you can get a lot of those red, red pigments. And we see, you know, different trees display varying amounts of that. So like a Japanese maple, for example, might pop a lot of reds, whereas a birch tends to kind of go yellow, and we're sort of already seeing that here in Connecticut. Uh, dogwoods and sumacs can have lots of reds, as I was saying, especially if the nights are cool. Uh, sugar maples get that nice, brilliant orange. And again, it's this sort of play between uh, the carotenoids that are left behind, the anthocyanins that are uh, that are getting created, uh, and the rate at which the chlorophylls break down and get sucked back into the tree. So it's it's this really complicated palette of colors that are kind of coming in and out and, and, and doing all these complicated things within the leaf, which is why I said at the onset that we don't really understand uh, all the science behind this, but there are a lot of factors that are at play. Well, and every year we try to predict what the right. <laughs> foliage season is going to be like, in part because it's really big business across most of New England. Leaf peepers are driving around, they're staying at little bed and breakfast, and they want to see uh, peak foliage season, but it's really hard to tell. Why is it so hard to predict when we're going to have peak foliage time? Well, it's so hard to tell. I mean, it's like it's trying to predict the weather, right? I mean, it's this sort of moving target that science has always been trying to hone in on. We're getting a little bit better at predicting it, but we don't really know. And, you know, it's it's not just temperature. It's also rainstorms. It's windstorms. These are things that can knock leaves off a tree. There could be uh, drought conditions like we're experiencing right now in Connecticut that can lead to things like leaf scorch, which, you know, lead to early browning. And then, then we have a windy day and all the leaves fly right off the tree. So it can be really, really tough to predict just because, you know, it's the environment. It's really, really complicated. Well, and, and when you mentioned the drought, what do you think that this dry summer will mean? You've been reporting on this in Connecticut a little bit. Parts of eastern Massachusetts, southern New Hampshire have had an even worse drought season than we have here in Connecticut. What do you think that's going to mean for the colors? Yeah, well, you know, in, in some cases, you know, here in Connecticut, we're seeing birches are already turning yellow. Uh, there are trees just outside of our building here in Hartford where the leaves have basically turned brown and they're just falling right off. 
Um, so it can make things happen earlier. And the other interesting thing that we're seeing in Connecticut is uh, we had a, a bit of an issue with gypsy moth earlier this year where they were coming in and they were munching on leaves and uh, the leaves were able to regrow, but uh, that's going to kind of push back when they actually start showing color uh, in the fall. Of course, you mentioned what happens when a windstorm comes or a rainstorm comes. It's always sad whenever those leaves that are so brilliant finally fall off. What exactly signals the tree to let go of the leaf? Obviously, a, a stiff wind might do that, but at a certain point, the leaf just has to say, let go. So uh, essentially what ha makes that happen is something in, in trees called abscission cells. And if we think about the word abscission, uh, we probably think about scissors. And we can kind of think of them as scissors. These are basically cells that form uh, and do essentially two things. One, um, they, they kind of like actively push the leaf stem off the actual branch itself, but they also sort of seal the branch up. So when the leaf does fall off, it is sealed. There's a scar there to protect it. Uh, and all those chemicals that it slurped up will be uh, taken right back up into the tree. Is there a place you like to go leaf peeping, Patrick? Oh, yes. A actually, up in your territory, uh, up in around Winstead is very nice. Cornwall in that area in Connecticut. Uh, Hanging Hills in Meriden is beautiful if you can get up onto some of the trails there that overlook um, uh, some of the parks uh, in Meriden. And uh, it's just, I mean, it's, it's gorgeous. It's like looking out at a giant quilt stretched out above the, over the hills. <laughs> a, a, a few years ago, a, a prominent magazine said that Kent, Connecticut had the, the prettiest uh, leaves in all of New England. And many, many people in Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine took quite some exception <laughs> to that. So you can certainly let us know uh, at Next New England on our Facebook page which uh, place in New England you love to go leaf peeping. For me, it's on Route 7, just around Williamstown, Massachusetts, looking out over the Greylock Range. It's one of the most beautiful scenes and some of the best leaf colors anywhere. But anyway, thanks for the science primer, Patrick. I appreciate it. Of course. Thank you. In this season of county agricultural fairs across the region, there's one that kind of overshadows them all. The Eastern States Exposition, better known as the Big E, is a massive fair that runs for two weeks in the fall in West Springfield, Massachusetts. This is the Big E's centennial year, and it wraps up this Sunday. The exposition was the brainchild of Joshua L. Brooks, a printer from Springfield who also operated a farm. Now, at the time, even as industry was booming in New England, farming was in decline. Local farmers couldn't compete with the farms out in the fertile land of the Midwest. And this was concerning to Brooks. His idea was to start an event that would showcase new farming methods and technology and establish competitive awards that would motivate farmers to produce more efficiently. Brooks got a group of businessmen together. They purchased some land in Springfield and they convinced the National Dairy Association, which was headquartered in Chicago, to have their exhibition here instead of the Midwest. That dairy show was held in September of 1916, and by the next year, Brooks had the agricultural showcase that he had envisioned. Today, the Big E features many attractions familiar to country fairs, livestock competitions, of course, lots of greasy fair food, but it's also a uniquely pan-New England event. On the grounds, six permanent buildings showcase the goods, the cuisine, the attractions, and quirks of each state in our region. As a show about New England, of course, the state buildings were what drew us to the fair, and they, they didn't disappoint. But first, nostalgia is a big part of what brings people to the Big E. Producer Andrew Moraskin spoke with a father-son pair whose history with the fair goes back at least 50 years. What's your, what's your name, sir? Kevin Cerniak. I'm, I'm the father, Walter Cerniak. <laughs> Yeah, well, my father and mother, they moved to, from Cleveland to, to Springfield in 1958. So he remembers bringing my sister, who was born in 1956, and they saw Roy Rogers, whatever year that was. I had my daughter on my shoulder, and Roy Rogers at that time, he, he had, the horse was Trigger, 
he was shoot. He shot uh, something out of, of the air. I don't know what it was—a quarter or something. But that was the that was the greatest time to see him. But I remember, you know, the first time, you know, uh, we saw uh, a horse was having a foal, whatever, a baby, and they were like, "Come on, come on!" And we saw, "Oh my God, I'll never, I'll never get it out of my head to see that." Because you know, we grew up in the suburbs. Well, we maybe had a dog, but that was it. After chatting with the Cerniaks, we followed some horses and their very well-dressed riders into an old-fashioned barrel-roofed arena. And it was like stepping into a different world. That organ music you're hearing, it was played live. Well, so here we have a show horse demonstration and the riders are all dressed in bowler hats uh, and long tail coats. They have vests with ties and riding pants. It's very steampunk. But they're but they're female and they're kind of dressed like steampunk guys. I mean, like. And they're all women. Yeah. Reverse and chalk, please. Okay, here they come. So the chop, the, the horses are picking their feet up very high off the ground. But the riders are hardly bobbing at all. They, they, the horses are so still as they pull their feet up and down. Oh my. We just had to know what was going on, so we went backstage into the barn. It turns out we were watching park horses, the kind of horse one might like to ride around Central Park back in the day, hence the fancy evening wear. We spoke with trainer Kristen Cater. Park horses are usually a little bit more naturally talented or a little bit more naturally gifted. They're being judged on their animation and their excitement and their manners. It's like Tom Brady having a good throwing arm. It's, it's um, something that you work on strengthening, but the natural raw talent has to be there. It's not something that can necessarily be enhanced or, or produced. It, it's something that they have to be born with. With a building for each New England state, it was a perfect time to figure out what makes each special. In the Rhode Island building, we started with the food. First of all, what is Rhode Island clam chowder? Rhode Island clam chowder is a meteor clam called a quahog, and it's a clear broth chowder. has potatoes, celery, secret spices. Which clam chowder do you prefer? Do you prefer New England clam chowder or Rhode Island clam chowder? Uh, that's a toss-up. We also have a roasted corn and shrimp, which is awesome, and it has a little spicy kick. So if you were to if you were to suggest one to me, what would it be? My favorite is the uh, roasted corn and shrimp. I need to get one of those. Okay. Yeah. You ready? Yeah. I'll, let's, let's do it. Okay. Can we do it? Okay. Going over. Thank you. So you're asking us about chowders. Yeah. Do you know? Have you tasted our fritters? I haven't tasted the fritters. You haven't. No. Okay. So I gotta I gotta have one here. Dipped in the chowder, you think? It's so good. Even though I was pretty full, I couldn't resist stopping by the lobster roll stand in the main building just to make a point. They were selling hot dog rolls filled with cold lobster in a mayonnaise sauce, which is sacrilege to this proponent of the hot buttered kind. So I'm from Connecticut, where we eat, lob where we eat lobster rolls like the right way. No, 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 these are the better. Why are these better? Explain. Because they're cold and they're straight for me. They're cold and they're straight from Maine. Right. But what else is it? It's just mayo? Just a tiny bit. Yep. One little teaspoon goes into a big tub. Okay, so how did that come to be? How, why is it that's the Maine lobster roll and like yeah. the Connecticut lobster roll is the, the hot one? Because... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. 
I got to do my job. We also met a few somewhat more official representatives of the respective states. Do you work for the state or? I do. I work for Vermont State Parks. Oh, Vermont State Parks. Yeah. So do you know what the Vermont State motto is? The Green Mountain State. Well, that's what it's called. Do you know what, do you know what the actual motto is? I believe it's freedom and unity. Freedom and unity. That's right. I was trying. I was trying to remember that. That's a pretty good one, right? Um, so, if you had to make up a motto for the state yourself, what would it be? Come be yourselves with us. That's original. That's pretty good. Come be yourself with us. I like that. Yeah. That's pretty nice. Give me your name, please, and your title again, sir. Uh, my name is Executive Counselor Joe Kenny, and I live in Wakefield, New Hampshire. I'm actually an elected official in New Hampshire. I represent 108 towns and four cities. So basically everything that's north of Concord to uh, the Upper Connecticut Valley, Lakes Region, North Country is my district. We kind of co-administrate the state of New Hampshire with Governor Maggie Hassan. So when people come by and they're going to all the different state buildings and they're looking for a place to go vacation, I mean, do you ever try to explain to them why it's better to go to New Hampshire than say to go to Vermont? Yes, we always say one thing. No income tax, no sales tax. Tax-free New Hampshire, come one, come all. What do you think the state motto should be if it wasn't live free or die? I mean, everybody in the world knows live free or die. I mean, is, there, is there another state motto that's maybe a little cheerier, perhaps? Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think um, there's a lot of play on live free or die. You know, live free and play. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of things in the travel tourism. Uh, uses that, that particular uh, model for. So I think, uh, actually, uh, you can build upon it. By the sword we seek peace, but peace only under liberty. Oh, you know what? I oh. just read that. Darn it, I just read okay. that. If you had to give the state a motto, what, would it, what motto would you give Massachusetts? Hmm. The smart people state, because there's so many colleges. So what brings you guys to the, to the Big E? Do you come here every year to do this, or? So we are uh, Western Mass fire and life safety educators. So we all, all of us are firefighters that teach fire safety, but we are all, you know, volunteers. We're all here volunteering our time. And so you probably, have you been to the Big E just for fun too, or? Plenty of times, many, many times. As a matter of fact, my sister met her husband here at the Big E. <laughs> yes. Uh, when my kids were little, we used to take a day just for the buildings for the state buildings, another day just to do the games, and another day just to do the rest. So there's plenty to do. You can extend it for a whole week, and still you haven't seen like the whole thing. <laughs> now, if you've got an idea for a new motto for your home state, just tweet it to us at Next New England. To see photos and a video of our trip to the Big E, including my back and forth with a lobster roll lady, go to nextnewengland.org. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrea Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The digital editor is Heather Brandon. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR Boston. Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Broadcasting Network, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.